0: Chapter Twenty Four of the Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. The Empire of Russia: From the Remotest Periods to the Present Time. By John Stephens Cabot Abbott. Chapter Twenty Four: The Conspiracy and Accession of Catherine the Second. From 1762 to 1765 Peter the Third at Aranienbaum, Catherine at Peterhof. The successful accomplishment of the conspiracy. Terror of Peter. His vacillating and feeble character. Flight to Kronstadt. Repulse. Heroic Council of Munich. Peter's return to Aranienbaum. His supplied letters to Catherine. His arrest— imprisonment assassination proclamation of the empress her complicity in the crime energy of catherine's administration her expansive views and sagacious policy contemplated marriage with count orloff it was the morning of the nineteenth of july seventeen sixty two peter at oranienbaum had passed most of the night with his boon companions and his concubines in intemperate carousings. He awoke at a late hour in the morning, and after breakfast set out in a carriage with several of his women, accompanied by a troop of courtiers in other carriages for Peterhof. The gay party were riding at a rapid rate over the beautiful shore road, looking out upon the bay of Kronstadt, when they were met by a messenger from Peterhof sent to inform them that the Empress had suddenly disappeared during the night. Peter, upon receiving this surprising intelligence, turned pale as ashes, and alighting, conversed for some time anxiously with the messenger. Entering his carriage again, he drove with the utmost speed to Peterhof, and with characteristic silliness began to search the cupboards, closets, and under the bed for the Empress. Those of greater penetration foresaw what had happened, but were silent, that they might not add to his alarm. In the meantime, some peasants who had come from St. Petersburg related to a group of servants rumors they had heard of the insurrection in that city. A fearful gloom oppressed all, and Peter was in such a state of terror that he feared to ask any questions. As they were standing thus mute with confusion and dismay, a countryman rode up and, making a profound bow to the Tsar, presented him with a note. Peter ran his eyes hastily over it, and then read it aloud. It communicated the appalling intelligence which we have just recorded. The consternation into which the whole imperial party was thrown no language can describe. The women were in tears. The courtiers could offer not a word of encouragement or counsel. One of the king's chancellor, with the Tsar's consent, set off for St. Petersburg to attempt to rouse the partisans of the Tsar, but he could find none there. The wretched Peter was now continually receiving corroborative intelligence of the insurrection, and he strode up and down the walks of the garden, forming innumerable plans and adhering to none the tsar had a guard of three thousand troops at his palace of Oranienbaum. at noon these approached peterhof led by their veteran commander munich this energetic officer urged an immediate march upon st petersburg believe me said munich you have many friends in the city the royal guard will rally around your standard when they see it approaching and if we are forced to fight The rebels will make but a short resistance." While he was urging this energetic measure, and the women and the courtiers were trying to dissuade him from the step, and were entreating him to go back to Aranienbaum, news arrived that the troops of the Empress—twenty thousand in number—were on the march to arrest him. "'Well,' said Munich to the Tsar, "'if you wish to decline a battle, it is not wise, at any rate, to remain here. Where you have no means of defense. Neither Oranienbaum nor Peterhof can withstand a siege. But Kronstadt offers you a safe retreat. Kronstadt is still under your command. You have there a formidable fleet and a numerous garrison. From Kronstadt you will find it easy to bring Petersburg back to duty. The fortresses of Kronstadt are situated on an island of the same name, at the mouth of a bay which presents the only approach to St. Petersburg. This fortress, distant about thirty miles west of St. Petersburg, may be said to be impregnable. In the late war with Russia it bade defiance to the combined fleets of France and England, and as we have before mentioned, Peterhof and Oranienbaum were pleasure palaces situated on the eastern shore of the Bay of Kronstadt but a few miles from the fortress, and but a few miles from each other. The gardens of these palaces extend to the waters of the bay, where there are ever riding at anchor a fleet of pleasure boats and royal yachts. The advice of Munich was instantly adopted. A boat was sent off conveying an officer to take command of the fortress, while in the meantime two yachts were got ready for the departure of the Tsar and his party. Peter and his affrighted court hastened on board, continually looking over their shoulders, fearing to catch a sight of the troops of the Queen, whose appearance they every moment apprehended. But the energetic Catherine had anticipated this movement, and her emissaries had already gained the soldiers of the garrison, and were in possession of Kronstadt. As the two yachts which conveyed Peter and his party entered the harbor, they found the garrison under arms, lining the coast. The cannons were leveled, the matches lighted, and the moment the foremost yacht, which contained the Emperor, cast anchor, a sentinel cried out, "'Who comes there?' "'The Emperor,' was the answer from the yacht. "'There is no Emperor,' the sentinel replied. Peter Third started forward upon the deck, and throwing back his cloak, exhibited the badges of his order, exclaiming, what you do not know me no cried a thousand voices we know of no emperor long live the empress catherine the second then they threatened immediately to sink the yacht unless the tsar retired the heroic munich urged the tsar to an act of courage of which he was totally incapable let us leap on shore said he none will dare fire on you and Cronstadt will still be your Majesty's. But Peter, in dismay, fled into the cabin, hid himself among his women, and ordered the cable instantly to be cut and the yacht to be pulled out to sea by the oars. They were soon beyond the reach of the guns. It was now night, serene and beautiful, the sea was smooth as glass, and the stars shone with unusual splendor in the clear sky. The poltroon monarch of all the Russians had not yet ventured upon deck, but was trembling in his cabin, surrounded by his dismayed mistresses, when the helmsman entered the cabin and said to the Tsar, "'Sire, to what port is your Majesty's pleasure that I should take the vessel?' Peter gazed for a moment in consternation and bewilderment, and then sent for Munich. "'Field-marshal,' said he, I perceive that I was too late in following your advice. You see to what extremities I am reduced. Tell me, I beseech you, what I ought to do." About two hundred miles from where they were, directly down the Gulf of Finland, was the city of Revel, one of the naval depots of Russia. A large squadron of ships of war was riding at anchor there. Munich, as prompt in council as he was, energetic in action, replied, proceed immediately to join the squadron at Revel. There take a ship and go to Pomerania. Put yourself at the head of your army, return to Russia, and I promise you that in six weeks Petersburg and all the rest of the empire will be in subjection to you. The women and the courtiers, with characteristic timidity, remonstrated against a measure so decisive, and believing that the Empress would not be very implacable, entreated the Tsar to negotiate rather than fight. Peter yielded to their senseless solicitations, and ordered them to make immediately for Oranienbaum. They reached the dock at four o'clock in the morning. Peter hastened to his apartment, and wrote a letter to the Empress, which he dispatched by a courier. In this letter he made a humble confession of his faults, and promised to share the sovereign authority with Catherine if she would consent to reconciliation. The Empress was, at this time, at the head of her army within about twenty miles of Oranienbaum. During the night she had slept for a few hours upon some cloaks which the officers of her suite had spread for her bed. Catherine, knowing well that perjury was one of the most trivial of the faults of the Tsar, made no reply but pressed forward with her troops. Peter, soon receiving information of the advance of the army, ordered one of his fleetest horses to be saddled, and dressed himself in disguise, intending thus to effect his escape to the frontiers of Poland. But with his constitutional irresolution, he soon abandoned this plan, and ordering the fortress of Oranienbaum to be dismantled, to convince Catherine that he intended to make no resistance, he wrote to the Empress another letter still more humble and sycophantic than the first he implored her forgiveness in terms of the most abject humiliation, he assured her that he was ready to resign to her unconditionally the crown of Russia, and that he only asked permission to retire to his native duchy of Holstein, and that the Empress would graciously grant him a pension for his support. Catherine read the letter, but deigning no reply, sent back the chamberlain who brought it with a verbal message to her husband that she could enter into no negotiations with him, and could only accept his unconditional submission. The chamberlain, Ismailov, returned to Oranienbaum. The Tsar had with him, there only his Holstein guard, consisting of six hundred men. Ismailov urged the Tsar, as the only measure of safety which now remained, to abandon his troops, who could render him no defense, and repair to the empress, throwing himself upon her mercy. For a short time, the impotent mind of the degraded prince was in great turmoil, but as was to be expected, he surrendered himself to the humiliation. Entering his carriage, he rode towards Peterhof to meet the empress. Soon he encountered the battalions on the march for his capture. Silently, they opened their ranks and allowed him to enter, and then closing around him, They stunned him with shouts of, Long live Catherine! The miserable man had had the effrontery to take with him, in his carriage, one of his mistresses. As she alighted at the palace of Peterhof, some of the soldiers tore the ribbons from her dress. The Tsar was led up the grand staircase, stripped of the insignia of imperial power, and was shut up and carefully guarded in one of the chambers of the palace. Count Panyan, then visited him by order of the Empress, and demanded of him the abdication of the Crown, informing him that having thus abdicated, he would be sent back to his native duchy, and would enjoy the dignity of Duke of Holstein for the remainder of his days. Peter was now pliant as wax. Aided by the Count, he wrote and signed the following declaration during the short space of my absolute reign over the empire of russia i became sensible that i was not able to support so great a burden and that my abilities were not equal to the task of governing so great an empire either as a sovereign or in any other capacity whatever i also foresaw the great troubles which must thence have arisen and have been followed with the total ruin of the empire and my own eternal disgrace and having therefore seriously reflected thereon i declare without constraint and in the most solemn manner to the russian empire and to the whole universe that i for ever renounce the government of said empire never desiring hereafter to reign therein, either as an absolute sovereign or under any other form of government, never wishing to aspire thereto or to use any means of any sort for that purpose, as a pledge of which I swear sincerely before God and all the world to this present renunciation, written and signed this twenty-ninth day of June, O.S. 16, Peter Third having placed this abdication in the hands of count panin seemed quite sincere fancying himself safe at least from bodily harm in the evening however an officer with a strong escort came and conveyed him a prisoner to ropscha a small imperial palace about 15 miles from peterhof peter after his disgraceful reign of 6 months was now imprisoned in a palace and his wife, whom he had intended to repudiate and probably to behead, was now Sovereign Empress of Russia. In the evening the thunderings of the cannon upon the ramparts of St. Petersburg announced the victory of Catherine. She, however, slept that night at Peterhof, and in the morning received the homage of the nobility, who from all quarters flocked around her to give in their adhesion to her reign. Field Marshal Munich, who with true fealty had stood by peter the third to the last urging him to unfurl the banner of the tsar and fight heroically for his crown appeared with the rest the old noble man with an unblushing brow entered the presence of catherine and as soon as she perceived him she called aloud field marshal it was you then who wanted to fight me yes madam munich answered in a manly tone could i do less for the prince who delivered me from captivity but it is henceforth my duty to fight for you and you will find in me a fidelity equal to that with which i had devoted my services to him in the afternoon the empress returned to st petersburg she entered the city on horseback accompanied by a brilliant retinue of nobles and followed by her large army of fifteen thousand troops all the soldiers wore garlands of oak leaves the immense crowds in the city formed lines for the passage of the empress scattered flowers in her path and greeted her with constant bursts of acclaim all the streets through which she passed were garlanded and spanned with triumphal arches the bells rang their merriest peals and military salutes bellowed from all the ramparts. As the high ecclesiastics crowded to meet her, they kissed her hand, while she, in accordance with Russian courtesy, kissed their cheeks. Catherine summoned the Senate, and presided over its deliberations with wonderful dignity and grace. The foreign ministers, confident in the stability of her reign, hastened to present their congratulations. Peter found even a few hours in the solitude of the palace of Ropscha exceedingly oppressive. He accordingly sent to the Empress, soliciting the presence of a negro servant, to whom he was much attached, and also asking for his dog, his violin, a Bible, and a few novels. I am disgusted, he wrote, with the wickedness of mankind, and am resolved henceforth to devote myself to a philosophical life. After Peter had been six days at Ropstje, one morning two nobles, who had been most active in the revolution which had dethroned the Tsar, entered his apartment, and after conversing for a time, brandy was brought in, the cup of which the Tsar drank was poisoned. He was soon seized with violent colic pains. The assassins then threw him upon the floor, tied a napkin round his neck, and strangled him. Count Orloff, the most intimate friend of the Empress, and who was reputed to be her paramour, was one of these murderers. He immediately mounted his horse and rode to St. Petersburg to inform the Empress that Peter was dead. Whether Catherine was a party to this assassination, or whether it was perpetrated entirely without her knowledge, is a question which now can probably never be decided. It is very certain that the grief she manifested was all feigned, and that the assassins were rewarded for their devotion to her interests. She shut herself up for a few days, assuming the aspect of a mourner, and issued to her subjects a declaration announcing the death of the late Tsar. When one enters upon the declivity of crime, the descent is ever rapid. The innocent girl, who but a few years before had entered the Russian court, from her secluded ancestral castle, a spotless child of fifteen, was now most deeply involved in intrigues and sins. It is probable, indeed, that she had not intended the death of her husband, but had designed sending him to Holstein and providing for him abundantly for the rest of his days with dogs and wine, and leaving him to his own indulgences. It is certain, however, that the Empress did not punish or even dismiss from her favor the murderers of Peter. She announced to the nation his death in the following terms: By the grace of God, Catherine the Second, Empress of all the Russians, to our loving subjects, greeting. The seventh day after our accession to the throne of all the Russians, we received information that the late Emperor, Peter the Third, was attacked with a most violent colic that we might not be wanting, in Christian duty, or disobedient to the divine command by which we are enjoined to preserve the life of our neighbor, we immediately ordered that the said Peter should be furnished with everything that might be judged necessary to restore his health by the aids of medicine. But to our great regret and affliction, we were yesterday evening apprised that, by the permission of the Almighty, the late Emperor departed this life we have therefore ordered his body to be conveyed to the monastery of nevsky in order to its interment in that place at the same time with our imperial and maternal voice we exhort our faithful subjects to forgive and forget what is past to pay the last duties to his body and to pray to god sincerely for the repose of his soul wishing them however to consider this unexpected and sudden death as an especial effect of the providence of god whose impenetrable decrees are working for us, for our throne, and for our country, things known only to His holy will. Done at St. Petersburg, July 7, N.S., July 18, 1762 The news of the Revolution soon spread throughout Russia, and the nobles generally acquiesced in it without a murmur. The masses of the people no more thought of expressing or having an opinion than did the sheep one of the first acts of the empress was to send an embassy to frederick of prussia announcing that she was resolved to observe inviolably the peace recently concluded with prussia but that nevertheless she had decided to bring back to russia all her troops in silesia prussia and pomerania all the sovereigns of europe acknowledged the title of catherine the second and some sent a special congratulations on her accession to the throne Maria Theresa, of Austria, was at first quite delighted, hoping that Catherine would again unite the Russian troops with hers in hostility to her great rival, Frederick. But in this expectation she was doomed to bitter disappointment. The King of Prussia, in a confidential note to Count Finkenstein, wrote of Catherine and the new reign as follows. "'The Emperor of Russia has been dethroned by his consort. It was to be expected—' That princess has much good sense, and the same friendly relations towards us as the deceased. She has no religion, but acts the devotee. The chancellor, Mistuchev, is her strongest favorite, and as he has a strong propensity to guineas, I flatter myself that I shall be able to retain the friendship of the court. The poor emperor wanted to imitate Peter I, but he had not the capacity for it. The Empress, taking with her her son Paul and a very brilliant and numerous suite of the nobles, repaired to Moscow, where she was crowned with unusual splendor. By marked attention to the soldiers, providing most liberally for their comfort, she soon secured the enthusiastic attachment of the army. By the most scrupulous observance of all the external rites of religion, she won the confidence of the clergy. In every movement Catherine exhibited wonderful sagacity and energy. It was not to be supposed that the partisans of Peter the Third would be rejected from their places to give room for others, without making desperate efforts to regain what they had lost. A very formidable conspiracy was soon organized, and the friends of Catherine were thrown into the greatest state of alarm, but her courage did not for one moment forsake her why are you alarmed said she think you that i fear to face this danger or rather do you apprehend that i know not how to overcome it recollect that you have seen me in moments far more terrible than these in full possession of all the vigour of my mind and that i can support the most cruel reverses of fortune with as much serenity as i have supported her favours Think, you, that a few mutinous soldiers are to deprive me of a crown that I accepted with reluctance, and only as the means of delivering the Russian nation from their miseries. They cause me no alarm. That providence which has called me to reign will preserve me for the glory and the happiness of the empire. That almighty arm which has hitherto been my defense will now confound my foes. The revolt was speedily quelled. The celebrity of her administration soon resounded from one end of Europe to the other. She presided over the Senate, assisted at all the deliberations of the Council, read the dispatches of the ambassadors, wrote with her own hand or dictated the answers, and watched carefully to see all her orders were faithfully executed. She studied the lives of the most distinguished men, and was emulous of the renown of those who had been friends and benefactors of the human race. There has seldom been a sovereign on any throne more assiduously devoted to the cares of empire than was Catherine Second. In one of her first manifestos, issued the 10th of August of this year, she uttered the words which her conduct proved to be essentially true. Not only all that we have or may have, but also our life itself, we have devoted to our dear country we value nothing on our own account we serve not ourselves but we labor with all pains with all diligence and care for the glory and happiness of our people catherine found corruption and bribery everywhere and she engaged in the work of reform with the energies of hercules in cleansing the augian stables she abolished indignantly the custom which had existed for ages of attempting to extort confession of crime by torture. It is one of the marvels of human depravity that intelligent minds could have been so imbruted as to tolerate for a day so fiend-like a wrong. The whole system of inquisitorial investigations, in both the Church and State, was utterly abrogated. Foreigners were invited to settle in the Empire the lands were carefully explored, that the best districts might be pointed out for tillage, for forest and for pasture, the following proclamation, inviting foreigners to settle in Russia, shows the liberality and the comprehensive views which animated the Empress. Any one who is destitute shall receive money for the expenses of his journey, and shall be forwarded to these free lands at the expense of the Crown on his arrival he shall receive a competent assistance and even an advance of capital free of interest for ten years the stranger is exempted from all service either military or civil and from all taxes for a certain time in these new tracts of land the colonists may live according to their own good will under their own jurisdiction for thirty years all religions are tolerated thus encouraged thousands flocked from germany to the fresh and fertile acres on the banks of the Volga and the Samara. The emigration became so great that several of the petty German princes issued prohibitions. In the rush of adventurers, of the indolent, the improvident, and the vicious, great suffering ensued. Desert wilds were, however, peopled, and the children of the emigrants succeeded to homes of comparative comfort. Settlers crowded to these lands even from France. Poland, and Sweden. Ten thousand families emigrated to the district of Saratov alone. The world, said Catherine one day to the French minister, will not be able properly to judge of my administration till after five years. It will require at least so much time to reduce the empire to order. In the meantime, I shall behave with all the princes of Europe like a finished coquette, I have the finest army in the world, I have a greater taste for war than for peace, but I am restrained from war by humanity, justice, and reason. I shall not allow myself, like Elizabeth, to be pressed into a war. I shall enter upon it when it will prove advantageous to me, but never from complacence to others." A large number of nobles, led by the Chancellor of the Empire, now presented a petition to Catherine urging her again to marry. After a glowing eulogium on all the Empress had done for the renown and prosperity of Russia, they reminded her of the feeble constitution of her son Paul, of the terrible calamity a disputed succession might impose upon Russia, and entreated her to give an additional proof of her devotion to the good of her subjects by sacrificing her own liberty to their welfare in taking a spouse. This advice was quite in harmony with the inclinations of the Empress. Count Arloff, one of the most conspicuous nobles of the court, and the prime actor in the conspiracy which had overthrown and assassinated Peter the Third, was the recognized favorite of Catherine. But Count Orloff had assumed such haughty airs regarding Catherine, as indebted to him for her crown, that he had rendered himself extremely unpopular and so much discontent was manifested in view of his elevation to the throne that catherine did not dare to proceed with the measure it is generally supposed however that there was a sort of private marriage instituted of no real validity between catherine and orloff by which the count became virtually the husband of the empress catherine was now firmly established on the throne The beneficial effects of her administration were daily becoming more apparent in all parts of Russia. Nothing which could be promotive of the prosperity of the empire escaped her observation. With questions of commerce, finance, and politics, she seemed equally familiar. On the 11th of August, 1673, she issued an imperial edict written by her own hand in which it is said, On the whole surface of the earth There is no country better adapted for commerce than our empire. Russia has spacious harbours in Europe, and overland the way is open through Poland to every region. Siberia extends on one side over all Asia, and India is not very remote from Orenburg. On the other side, Russia seems to touch on America. Across the Euxine is a passage, though as yet unexplored, to Egypt and Africa and bountiful providence has blessed the extensive provinces of our empire with such gifts of nature as can rarely be found in all the four quarters of the world end of chapter 24 recording by kevin davidson www.blogordie.com